Hello, and welcome to the place where the revolution will not be televised. But it may be podcast. I'm Kate. And I'm John. Welcome to the People's Podcast. Today we're going to be reviewing The House of Black and White, which is the second episode of Season 5 of Game of Thrones. As usual, we're going to talk through the episode from beginning to end. We'll cover a lot as we go through that and go off on a few tangents, and then we'll cover a few general questions at the end. The first thing I wanted to note about tonight's episode, although we did see it in the last one, is that in the opening credits, we see a flayed man symbol over Winterfell, which is a change. Yes. It's another way in which the map is reflecting the events of the show. Mm. And in a way, it's almost worth having that in order to see the smoke stop at Winterfell. Yes, every time I saw that, my heart broke. (laughs) Yes, although the flayed man is basically a knife in the eye as you watch the opening credits every week. It is. But before there can be a proper comeback, there has to be a defeat. So. And George R. R. Martin is good at defeat. Yes, he is. The first scene of this episode, we see Arya arriving in Bravos, and she and the captain of the boat that she's travelling on, the captain takes her to the House of Black and White, he calls it. Yes. And the doors are black and white, as an obvious symbol of that. And he tells her that this is where she will find the man that she's looking for, as mm. presumably being Jacken, who gave her the token two, three seasons ago now. Arya knocks at the door, and a man in a robe answers the door, and she shows the token and asks for Jacken, and he says, there's no one here by that name, and then just shuts the door in her face. And it looks like she sticks around for a while. She's sitting out there repeating her list of people she wants to murder. Yes. How long did you think that she stays there for? She had to eat at some point, so yeah. I'm guessing maybe she stayed there for most of the day, and then had to go eventually, but... Yes. She lasts longer than I would have before she throws the coin in the river. Yes, as she's leaving, she clearly goes, well, this was a bust, and chuses the coin in the river. Just how annoyed must she be at that point? I mean, she's come so far, and she's held on to that coin for such a long time, and now it appears to have been worthless to her. It's true. And, of course, she put so much faith in Jack, and as one of the few people who's basically dealt honestly with her. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of her faith about going to this place is related to her faith in him. So mm. for, she must feel very let down yes. by the whole experience. But on the other hand, let down is pretty much her default experience. <laughs> and yeah. pissed off is pretty much her default emotion. So yep. maybe she didn't even notice it was a different day. In the next scene, we see Podrick and Brienne arriving at an inn. And as they're sitting, Podrick sees Sansa and Littlefinger sitting in a corner. He does. She's not who he notices first. No, well, he notices the woman offering him ale first and gives her a twinkly-eyed smile. He basically says to her with his eyes, My nickname is The Rod. Would you like to find out why? And but then... it's a good thing he's a bit of a perv or he wouldn't have noticed Sansa. That's right. <laughs> then he sees Littlefinger and Sansa and he tells Brienne and Brienne tells him to go outside and get the horses ready and when he points out that they've only got one, she basically tells him, steal another one, you idiot. Brienne approaches Sansa and pledges her loyalty, tells her all about the promise that she made to her mother and that she's there to look after her. Littlefinger wastes no time at all in undermining everything that Brienne has ever done, Mm. pointing out that the only people that she's promised to protect before are both dead. 
and basically points out the ridiculousness of her story about how Renly died. Yes, even and though it's true. Even though it's true, basically implying that she did kill him, yeah. which is what she was accused of. And Sansa basically says, no, I'm not having you. I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. Go away. Yeah. The number of people who've promised to save Sansa and then have turned out to be useless, I can kind of see why she's sticking with the one person who's actually followed through. Yeah. And Brienne never helps herself by the fact she just comes on so strong. She does. It's a little scary. Yeah. So I wasn't surprised by Sansa's response, but I was, part of me was very disappointed for Brienne. She tries so hard. She means so well. And she means, yeah, you're right, she means so well. And she just can't catch a break, yeah. this poor woman. Brienne makes as if to leave, but Littlefinger doesn't want that to happen. No, well, he... they're still hiding Sansa's identity, so... Well, they are, and he doesn't want word about where they've been seen getting out. And so he basically signals to his guards to stop Brienne, and Brienne elbows one in the face and runs off. She and Podrick hop onto their horses outside, and, well, Brienne hops onto hers, Podrick hops onto someone else's, and they they sort of race off. This starts a chase scene on horseback through the forest. Podrick, not that at home on horses. He uh, basically lets the horse run off with him hanging on, sort of wailing as he goes. It put me in mind of Robin, to be honest. The out of your depth, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing kind of thing. Eventually, Podrick gets dumped in a river when the horse rears up. And he is making his way back from the river when a couple of guards come upon him. And just in the nick of time, Brienne turns up and kills them both. Dansky. Brienne sees Sansa and Littlefinger leave the inn and trot off in a direction. And they decide that, well, Brienne decides that they're going to follow. Yes. The next scene, we see Cersei having summoned Jamie Lannister. Mm-hmm. And there is a contraption of some sort on her desk. A, a gift of, box. A gift box, yes. Jamie opens it to see a, a sort of statuette of a snake, and on the snake is Marcella's necklace. Well, I think importantly, not on the snake, but held in its jaws Yes, is Marcella's necklace. Yes. I've got written here, Cersei's really losing it. She's very indiscreet, talking very loudly about how Marcella is their daughter, and Jamie's basically saying, shut up, shut up, shut up, stop saying it so loudly. And Cersei doesn't really seem to care all that much. So, yes, I think she's sort of losing it a little bit. She's also continuing a well-established pattern of being immoderate with her threats of vengeance. Yes. I'll burn the kingdom to the ground. Which is ridiculous, considering that even the Targaryens didn't manage to do that. Exactly. So, yes, unwise. Jamie makes a promise to Cersei. Jamie promises that he's going to go and get Marcella from Dawn. Not with an army, but not alone either. Mm. I think you wanted to say something about the music in this scene. Oh yes, over the back of this scene, particularly once they start talking about what the plan's going to be, when Jamie starts talking about heading down there and getting her back, they start playing a version of the Reigns of Castamere that also played last episode. And it's a really cut-down version with a lot of the detail of the melody taken out. And... They're using that more and more, and what I really like about that as a musical choice is that Where the Reigns of Castamere was a specific story about the vengeance and power and influence of Tywin Lannister, that's what the story is about, mm. now all we're hearing is the echo of it. Oh, right. So he's yeah. dead, and 
the detail of exactly why we're meant to be afraid of the Lannisters is starting to ebb away. Mm. And we've got the shape of it and the memory of it, but it's starting to be less formed. Mm. So musically, I think it's an amazing choice. That's very interesting. The necklace in the mouth of the statue is, of course, a threat. Oh, yes. To Cersei. We don't actually know who it's from exactly. We get some idea who it might be from later on. Yes. But we don't know for certain. We just know that it's from Dawn, clearly. And Um, shaped like a snake. And shaped like a snake. And as we know, Oberyn's daughters are called the Sand Snakes. So it's a fair bet that it's from them or one of them. And it's a very clear threat to the life of their daughter, given that the Lannisters have been responsible now for the deaths of two of the royal family of Dawn. Yes, I think it is from the Sand Snakes. <laughs> but it's important to remember that Oberyn himself was called the Serpent of Dawn. All so right. it could just be a reference to what the threat's for. Yep. I think that's enough cover for someone to send something like that. If the only sure. people in the whole kingdom called Snakes were the Sand Snakes, mm. they might as well have written a letter. Yes. Rather than getting involved in a bleak statuary. So straight after that, we see Sabron walking down the beach with his betrothed. He's quite talkative, and who he doesn't pay any attention to, it seems. Yes. She Uh, doesn't seem to need a partner in the conversation, it must be said. Well, she does eventually. She does ask his opinion, and it becomes totally clear that he wasn't paying any attention to her. (laughs) Anyway, Jamie Lannister turns up, and after being introduced to Sabron's betrothed, Promptly dissolves their betrothal with a piece of paper. And promises that Sabron shall have a pretty wife at a bigger castle if he comes with him on his jolly jaunt to dawn. And we don't see Sabron's reply, but I'm assuming he says yes. I'm not sure he has much of a choice, far from anything else. No, not I don't really. think Jamie really turned up to ask him. No. I think he turned up to say, get your boots. That's right. The woman he's walking along the beach with is Lois Stokeworth. She's the woman who many seasons ago was grabbed by the crowd in the riot... And was raped. And got pregnant and had a bastard child. And no one knew who the father was, but it was some commoner or other who'd raped her. And so she's sort of damaged goods in the eyes of of the... uh, Nobility. Nobility, which is how Bronn was able to organise the marriage in the first place. I see. But man, the Stokeworks, they just keep copying it in the neck. (laughs) An unlucky family. Mm Mm-hmm. Next, we travel to Dawn, and we see Illyria Sand, who was Oberyn's paramour, mm-hmm. and she's watching Marcella in the water gardens. With a look of vengeance in her eyes, I think you could say. She goes and talks to Prince Doran, who is Oberyn's older brother and the ruler of Dawn, mm-hmm. and basically accuses him of not being hardcore enough in his response to his brother's death. Yeah. She says that the Sand Snakes are with her, We're sort of left to wonder what exactly that means, but it's clearly something of significance. And basically, Illyria says that she wants to cut up Marcella and return her to Cersei in little pieces. Yes. When she's talking about the Sand Snakes being with her, the other thing she mentions is that the people are with the Sand Snakes. Yes. Which implies that there's actually a much bigger political problem here than just pissed-off family members. Yes, because Oberon was very popular in his homeland, wasn't he? Very popular. I think you said in the last episode that he really embodied everything that the Dornish valued. What he definitely embodied was the points of difference with the other kingdoms that the Dornish are proud of. The things that set them apart from the other six kingdoms. Yeah, yeah. So he embodied their self-identity. Prince Doran says, no, we don't chop up children in Dawn. Which I thought was, I mean, good, obviously. But it's nice to see that in our first glimpse of Dawn, after all the talking up that Oberyn did of Dawn in the last 
season talked a lot about these terrible other kingdoms you're all bloody barbarians compared to us yeah. we're much more civilized down in dawn and the first indication seemed to be true because you know in an instant that cersei would not hesitate to chop up a child if she felt it was in her interest to do so or she just wanted to Yes, well, I mean, you think about the way they treated Sansa mm. when Jamie Lannister was just held captive. Mm. The other thing I really like about this, apart from it just showing the civilization, as you've mentioned, is it shows Doran giving exactly the same response that Oberyn himself gave. When Oberyn and Cersei talked about Marcella and whether or not she was safe in Dawn and all that sort of stuff, he just said, we don't hurt little girls in Dawn. Mm. So it's literally the two brothers giving exactly the same response. Yeah. And this does give Illyria pause. You do see her consider what the prince says. I mean, it doesn't make her go, well, yes, of course, you're right. But it does make her go, hmm, actually. Maybe Oberyn wouldn't have wanted that. Makes some good points. Yes. She does leave, however, with a pointed threat to the prince. Because he says that little girls will not be cut up while he rules in Dawn. And then she says, how much longer is that going to be then? Next we go to Moraine. We see Dario and Grey Worm in the streets and go into a house, which appears to be empty at first. They're obviously in search of the sons of the harpy. Grey Worm just kind of goes, oh, well, the house is empty. Too bad, so sad. <laughs> Too bad, so sad. So much for the second sons. And Dario goes, not so fast. You've forgotten what it's like to feel fear. You've forgotten what people do when they're afraid. And then he plunges his dagger into the wall, behind which is a secret compartment, and a man falls out of it. It was very cool, but I did think, you must have some daredevil-level hearing to know that's where the guy's hiding. I wondered whether he... I mean, we weren't shown this, but the dude must have got into the wall somehow. I wonder whether he didn't maybe notice the telltale signs of a moving wall, for example, or something like that. I guess I don't mind that as a theory. He obviously knew somehow the guy was in the wall. I don't Mm. think he actually just smelt him out. He knew there was a hiding place. I mean, the ability to pick out a particular spot on the wall, plunge your <laughs> dagger into it, and bring the guy out, stab first. Yes. Bullshit. The man has style, clearly. Yes. Next we see Daenerys's council debating what to do with this apparent son of the harpy. Because they do find a mask and daggers in the wall with him. So it's a fair bet that he's part of this group. Doesn't he also admit to it? I don't know that he does. We don't actually see him talk until much later in the episode. Okay. He never actually says, I am. He expresses political views that are consistent with he the also, Sons of the He Harpy. also never says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. No, that's true. I but was it... holding the mask for a bigger boy. <laughs> anyway, I think it's safe to assume that he is one. Yeah. And Daenerys's various counsellors, consisting of a freed slave and one of the people who was a master... Or the son of a master, anyway. Mm-hmm. And Barrison Selmy. And they're all debating what to do with this guy now. And the ex-slave just wants him killed. The ex-master isn't so keen on that idea. Which isn't a surprise. And Barrison Selmy is urging Daenerys to put him on trial. To give him a fair trial. I think it's probably safe to say that Daenerys's heart is with the slave. I'm not sure I agree. I think her anger is with the slave. She's very angry. Mm. But I don't think it's just a cold political decision when she agrees with Barristan in the end. I think she does also believe emotionally in the idea of justice. Yeah, sure. So I think her heart is there as well. I think part of her believes that it is justice that this man should die and that that part of her also doesn't object to a fair trial, which she, I think, believes will end up with him being convicted anyway. That means she's not with the slave in her heart. I suppose 
I don't know. I think his sentiments about when he says, look, these people are just like this. This is how they behave. They should all just be killed because this is how they behave. They're not going to change. They are always going to believe that we belong to them. Well, I definitely don't think she believes that 100% because Mm. if she did, the Masters would just be dead. That's true. That's true. After she calls an official end to the meeting, Mm -hmm. Barrison Selmy speaks to her about her father, the Mad King. He, in particular, says to her that being powerful and feeling powerful are different things. And that her father, who was admittedly nuts, did a whole lot of stuff that he felt demonstrated his power and made him feel more secure, when in fact what was happening is that he was stoking the embers of rebellion and that he basically led to his own downfall through his actions because the people didn't consider him to be a just king. The other important thing that this conversation shows is how much Daenerys was raised by her brother with all of his false views about what happened during the rebellion. Mm. That their father was a good king and that it was the usurper's lies that he was mad or cruel. And although she obviously in later years learned that Viserys wasn't a particularly good human being Mm. and had deluded views about himself. She obviously has been carrying around some of the delusions she was taught from a very young age about her father. Mm. Which must be very important if her father is the closest link to the idea that she has a right to rule. Yes. And if I found out that the person that was that much of a link to my identity wasn't actually that good at ruling, I think that would really give me pause for thought. Yeah, probably. There was one other thing I wanted to note about this scene. It's something that Kia says, the ex-slave counsellor. He says to Daenerys, when questioned by the ex-master counsellor, saying, well, what's in it for him? Because he wasn't actually a master. I think he was just a common person who was not a slave. Kia says, great families pay lesser families to do these things Mm. because they can't. I just wanted to note that because I think it's very important later on. What do you think of... Daenerys' decision to give this guy a trial. Do you think it was the right one? Yes. I mean, in purely moral terms, yes. I think that anyone should be given a fair trial. Of course, looking at it with a set of modern legal eyes, exactly how fair a trial is this guy going to get? Yeah. If no one's got even fingerprinting, but fine. (laughs) I'm sure that whatever game of he said, she said they're about to play in front of a judge will be great. Politically, it's very hard to know. I think there is political value in basically making good moral choices as often as you can if you're a leader. And without more information, I mean, she's got a lot of different people who hate each other. The ex-slave who's on her council, he is clearly rabidly angry at the Masters. Mm -hmm. Now, probably with really good cause, but he doesn't view things in an impartial, fair way when Mm -hmm. it comes to the Masters even with individual masters. He sees all of them in one way. He hates them passionately. Yes. And if these are your counsellors... I mean, he's not the only one who has a very biased view. So does the guy who's from one of the ruling families. Mm. But if you have these counsellors who have really biased views, it becomes very hard to know who's telling you the truth. It becomes very hard to know what the facts of the matter are. And if you don't know any more facts than the ones you can be sure of... I think the default decision to make a good choice is probably also a fairly canny political choice. Now, what details are going to be revealed later as being true may change whether or not this was a good choice. But in the moment, I think she basically made the right decision. What did you think? I thought it was the right decision as well, both morally and politically. 
she has to balance the desires of these two groups within the city. There is the ex-slaves and there is the ex-masters. And she can't be seen to be favouring one over the other. That's the political reality. And being fair is the best way of ensuring that. It also happens to be the morally right thing to do as well. In the next scene, we see Varys and Tyrion are on the road on the way to Volantis, which is on the way to Marine. Tyrion is still not in high spirits, although he's consuming plenty of them. Varys says that, well, he says quite a lot of things. He's still continuing to try and convince Tyrion that it's worth doing anything about anything anymore. He makes the point that neither he nor Tyrion will ever rule because people find them repulsive. And they find people repulsive, generally. And so they build boxes to keep the repulsive people out. And I thought this was an interesting thing to say, given that Vari's actions seem to be motivated, broadly speaking, by compassion for people, that they shouldn't be under the heel of a terrible oppressor. And generally speaking, people should be able to get on with their lives without living in fear of being treated terribly by powerful people. Yet at the same time, he feels that He's repulsed by ordinary people. (laughs) I think it's interesting that those two ideas live concurrently inside his head. Maybe he thinks that a more just world would mean that ordinary people wouldn't find him so repulsive and therefore he wouldn't be repulsed by ordinary people so much. Maybe he thinks there's a a kind of a short-circuiting of that feedback loop there. But I just thought that was interesting, what he sort of basically inferred about ordinary people. And his actions, though, seem to be oriented towards helping them. Both he and Tyrion have had lives where they have been treated cruelly just for what they are Mm. for their entire life. And I think that probably in two smart people, in this particular instance, has led to people who understand what it is to be treated cruelly and so can imagine it in others. Yes. They can imagine what it's like to be incredibly poor Mm. in this world. Subject to the whims of the powerful. Exactly. So I think that the same thing that makes it difficult for them to connect with other people, because the other people don't want any part of them, is also the thing that has taught them how to understand Mm. other people's pain. Whereas Cersei, who hasn't had that tough of a life, all things considered, doesn't really have the imagination for compassion. She really doesn't. I mean, for one thing that she's consistently shown, it's that she believes that she and Jamie and her children are the only people worth anything in this world. And the only people whose pain counts. Oh yes, absolutely. It's quite a... I don't know if go so far as to say psychopathic, but one of the tendencies of a psychopath is to feel that only you have feelings. No one else's feelings are real. No one else is a real person. Only you are. And so she's, she's not quite at the very extreme end of that. She still believes that some people have got feelings other than herself. But it's a very, very tiny group of people. I think she knows that everyone else has feelings. She's just a sadist. She takes a great deal of pleasure in other people's pain. Yes. God, I really hate Cersei. I mean, now that Joffrey's not there, I have to focus all of my hatred on someone, and Cersei is the recipient of it. It's amazing how effective Joffrey was as a distraction from how (laughs) awful she is. I know. I mean, in comparison, she was just rather objectionable. Yeah. Because he was fucking evil. And now that he's dead... To be honest, I think she's become more objectionable ever since Joffrey's death. She has basically kind of gone off the deep end. In terms of her bloodlust towards other people, just everyone who isn't her, or people carrying her genes... Paranoia has made her crueler. Very much so. In the next scene, we see a head banged down on a table. Mm. A head that looks not unlike Tyrion's. 
Yes. So one thing that Varys and Tyrion mentioned in the coach was that Cersei has put out a bounty for Tyrion's head. Yes. And Lordship. Yeah, she's put out a reward and it's pretty big. And Varys is worried that even on this other continent, travelling presumably out on the road somewhere, it's dangerous for Tyrion to leave the coach. Yes. And we can see why. Indeed. So the head's banged down and Cersei says that it's not Tyrion. And there is a moment there where the people who've brought the head may be about to be killed (laughs) for having wasted her time. But uh, Cersei decides that's going to be a disincentive for other people to go looking for him. They get it wrong. And she goes, well, there are going to be mistakes. Let them go. Yeah, I certainly don't want to dissuade anyone else from randomly killing dwarves. That's right. But she does let Kyburn keep the head. Oh, man. Super creepy, this Kyburn. I'm looking forward with great trepidation to seeing what has become of the mountain under his care. Cersei goes to the small council chamber and takes the seat of the hand... Although apparently not the position, she says. So she says. So she says. She obviously is taking the position, just not in name. Mm. And in the room with her are Lord Tyrell, Grand Maester, Pycelle, and Kevin Lannister. And Kyburn also enters with her. So she sits down in the seat of the hand. Lord Tyrell offers to serve as the hand of the king. Mm. And Cersei deflects him by making him master of coin. In addition to Master of Ships, which he already holds. She then announces that Kyburn is going to become Master of Whispers, which is not at all pleasant news to Grand Meister Pycelle. Yes, because Kyburn was training to be a maester, and I think, in fact, he was a qualified one. He made a chain. But the citadel, where maesters are chained, took the chain off him. Basically, he was the equivalent of excommunicated. Because of the unnatural things he wanted to investigate. Yeah, the tendency to (laughs) keep hold of heads and things like that. Yes. And finally, she names her uncle, Kevin Lannister, Master of War. Kevin doesn't respond very well to this. He basically says, where's the king? Why isn't the king giving me this appointment? Yeah. And Cersei says, well, the king's asked me to do it. And he goes, well, bullshit to that. (laughs) He basically says, I don't recognise your authority. I don't recognise anything you're saying. I came here for my brother's funeral. And then he basically drops the mic and walks out. Yeah. Go Kevin Lannister. Yeah. What a few points there, I think. Next we see Shireen teaching Gilly how to read up at the wall. Apparently Sam has tried to and it hasn't gone that well in the past. He's been rather impatient with her. The vibe they gave off throughout this scene of being like a slightly snappy old married couple. (laughs) It was just great. It was good. Sam calls out while he's reading his book that the youngest Lord Commander in history was elected Mm. when he was ten. Clearly he's having thoughts about the upcoming election. How young can you be? How long can you be to be Lord Commander? Gilly and Shireen end up talking about whatever it is that Shireen has on her face. Greyscale. Greyscale. Gilly says that two of her sisters had it and that eventually they were excommunicated from the keep and told to live in a hut outside. Mm. And eventually the disease sort of overtook their entire bodies and they became some kind of animalistic creatures as a result. It's kind of implying that if Shireen had not had the assistance of presumably a maester, that would have happened to her, which Mm. sounds like a horrible fate. Yes. Gilly says that Craster actually took those two sisters of hers out into the forest and implies that he killed them. Yes, or left them for the others, given his previous plans with the forest. Yes. Then Shireen's mother arrives, 
tells the others to leave and warns her daughter to stay away from Gilly mm. because she's a wildling. And I've just got written here, cold, heartless bitch. She is. I think Selyse is horrible. Mm. And a fanatic, which is just unacceptable. But this particular bit of advice is not the worst advice she's ever given. It's not. It's... Your dad just burnt this woman's leader. That's yeah. what it looks like to her. She may not understand all the nuances of the characters and have spent as much time with them as we all have. To her, not the worst advice ever. No, no, no. The advice isn't that bad. As you say, she doesn't have the advantage of having watched Gilly for the past season and a half. We know that Gilly probably wouldn't do anything to her. Doesn't care that much about the wildlings. Never never had any sort of fealty to Mance Ray, though. No. Also, even if you think it is good advice, Solis manages to convey it in the most cold, heartless, oh, yes. you're an idiot, you need to be less dumb, you small child mm. kind of way. Even surrounded by all these books, you still manage to be a fool. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. What a charmer. Mm. Next we see Stannis talking to Jon Snow. And he's basically giving him a dressing down for shooting Mance Raider. And he does raise the idea of some fairly serious punishment for having disobeyed the orders of a king, but then doesn't really follow through on that idea. Because basically I think he doesn't actually have any power to. No. He does pull out a piece of parchment with a message from Leanna Mormont. Yes! apparently a ten-year-old girl. Yep. And the niece of who? She's the niece of, well, more or less. She might actually be an extra generation, but let's say... Relative of, then. Yeah, on the show, she's probably the niece of Jor Mormont, who was Lord Mormont, the previous commander of the Night's Watch. Yeah. She's also related to Jorah Mormont, who's been with Daenerys over on the other continent. And, uh, yeah, she's just... It's, it's great. I'm yes. really happy. The and Mormonts, I have so much time for the Mormonts. And she's ruling Bear Island. She seems to be. The Lady of Bear Island. Yes. Yeah. She's, and they are um, bannermen to the Starks. Yes. And very loyal to them. Very loyal. Hence the message when Stannis asks for her fealty to fuck off. Yes. <laughs> they only recognise the King in the North, whose name is Stark. The Mormonts are amazing. They rule Bear Island, which is on the far northwest coast of the continent. Oh, yeah. A long way up, like right near the edge of wildling territory. And it's a really rough, poor place to live. It doesn't have many resources or natural riches. And it's constantly under threat from the north by the wildlings and from the south by the Iron Men. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about some very tough people. Really tough people. And the gate to the Mormont's home, on it is painted a woman wearing a bear skin, <laughs> holding a child in one arm and an axe in the other. Oh, wonderful. And all the women of Bear <laughs> Island are taught to fight. Excellent. Because they need to be able to defend themselves during the raids just as much as anyone else. Oh, good. So, the Mormonts are amazing. <laughs> the Mormonts should be on the show a lot more. Bring on more Mormonts. More Mormonts. More Mormonts! Okay. <laughs> so Stannis isn't very impressed with this answer from the Lady of Bear Island. But Stannis has an offer for Jon Snow. He knows that he needs the support of the North if he's going to take King's Landing. And the only way he's going to get the support of the North is through a Stark. He says to John, if you lay your sword in front of me and swear loyalty to me, I will make you a Stark. So he's promising to legitimise Jon Snow and make him John Stark, which is all John has ever wanted in his whole life. Of course, in the next scene, the first thing we see is John telling Sam that he's going to say no, mm. because that would be breaking his vows to the Night's Watch. 
And in fact, he makes a good point. He says that to be Lord of Winterfell, he needs for people to be able to respect him and to be able to trust that his word is his vow, basically. And he wouldn't be able to do that if he'd broken his vow to the Night's Watch. Yes, and a vow to the Night's Watch in the North means a lot more than it means to Southerners. Yeah. The Watch is still far more respected in the North than in the rest of the Kingdom. So in a sense, Stannis has asked Jon to do something a little akin to what he was asking Mance Raider to do. He's asking him to do something which wouldn't actually achieve the end that he wants anyway. Yes, and it's really important that John just saw the example of Mance Raider, who mm. was someone who thought that in order to lead a people, you actually needed to stand for what those people believed in. Yes. It's the time of the election for the new commander of the Night's Watch. The two candidates at this stage are Sir Alistair Thorne and someone called Sir Dennis Malister, who is the commander of the Shadow Tower, I think? Yeah. Yeah, which is one of the other castles. Yeah, there's three functioning castles on the wall. Castle Black is the biggest, Mm. and it's the one where the Lord Commander has been located, at least in recent times. There's also Eastwatch by the Sea, which is, as the entire name implies, the one at the eastern end of the wall, and also acts as the trade route to the wall. Right. So it's the one that's got a port. And at the other end of the wall, far in the west, where the mountains are incredibly impassable and everything is extremely wild, is the Shadow Tower. So those are the two candidates. There's some talk about both of them from a supporter for each. And then just as Maester Aemon is about to call for the vote, which is conducted by means of tokens, which is interesting, Sam decides to speak, and he basically nominates Jon Snow, and gives really, I thought, quite a convincing speech about how when the chips were down, it was Jon Snow who saved our bacon. He also displays some very good heckler put down. I, I was about I was about to say when he stands up, yeah. Janus Flint heckles Sam, and Sam returns it threefold. It's great, which is not hard to do when you found him cowering in the cellar with your wildling girlfriend and her baby. Yeah, part of me just went, why did you do that? I mean, when you know that this man has seen you at your worst, why would you invite such scorn? Oh well, if Janice Wint was good at self-reflection, he probably wouldn't be here. (laughs) That's true. true. So anyway, Sam speaks for Jon Snow, and Jon, at least initially, is looking very much like he's going, No, stop, don't, what are you doing? Which I found a bit silly, to be honest. I just found it really endearing. (laughs) Sam speaks, and it's very convincing. Then the vote happens, now with Jon as a candidate. Mm Mm-hmm. The tokens are counted and they're put onto... They're tokens with holes in them and they're put onto little wooden posts. Posts. They appear to be using the the first-past-the-post system, which as Australians we find totally laughable as a system of election. In the books, they don't use this system. There's a sort of elimination of small candidates and a runoff system. (laughs) But I guess they probably needed to be able to explain the election to Americans and to the British, so (laughs) this simplified version will have to do. By the way, Americans, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. So there's a tie between Jon Snow and Sir Alistair, and after Maester Eamon checks and makes sure it really is a tie, he casts a deciding vote for Jon Snow. And it's amazing. It's pretty great. He looks really chuffed about it. He looks really chuffed. He's probably thinking, yeah, fuck you, Sir Alistair. I've always thought you were a cunt. All these years I've had to pretend to be all sort of aloof. And balanced. Well, fuck you. And uh, at least half the room celebrates. It is really close. Yeah. With the way the three piles are stacked up, 
it is basically a 50-50 vote. Well... Which means about half the room's really pissed off about what happened. Yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, I would sort of assume that the... What looks like about 10% of the votes that went to the third candidate probably would have preferred Jon Snow. So I'm guessing it's a little bit more in favour of Jon. Maybe, but he didn't win by a landslide, is no. I guess what I'm saying. No. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, yeah. Sir Alistair was not looking happy at all. Oh. And, uh, I said What's to several steps above looking daggers? Looking spears? Looking, yeah, looking bazookas. <laughs> That's a few more than several. <laughs> okay. I still think it's accurate. They were looking bazookas looking over Looking small John. arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought at the time, if I had been Jon Snow, I might have sent Sir Alistair out on every excursion beyond the wall available until he died. Just to kind of get rid of that particular complication. That's true. But him being Jon Snow and being so honourable, I doubt he's going to do that. He might make him master of latrines, though. I can't even really see him doing that. No, I don't think he will. He's, he's going to use Sir Alistair in, you know, that makes best use of his skills. And apparently he's actually a fairly good commander and a fairly good fighter and that kind of stuff. So, How yeah. disappointing. I know. We return to Arya. And she's just killed the pigeon with needle. Yeah. Really cleanly, too. That sword must be hella sharp. Mm-hmm. And as she's walking along with her rat with wings for dinner, three men approach her and want her sword. Yes. Just as she's warning them off, quite scarily, I would have thought. I mean, it's she's a small girl, so there's a limit to how intimidating she can be. But Arya has taken it to its limit. She looks like a very creepy child. She's quite a creepy child. I think how threatening I would find her if I didn't know all her backstory is a matter that's up for debate. That's true, yeah. Plenty of kids say, I'm going to kill you. There's not many where you know they've followed through on that a number of times. (laughs) That's true. At the same time, though, few say it with complete deadpan seriousness. Few of them say it holding a sword, I'll grant you that. (laughs) Anyway, I actually thought we were going to see some Arya Stark in action on her own, which would have been glorious, I think. But what actually happens is the man from the House of Black and White appears, the man in the robes, and uh, those three men skedaddle very fast indeed. The man in robes takes her back to the house and gives her the token, says, I think you dropped this. Do you believe him it's the same one you threw in the river? (laughs) No. It sounds like some crap to me. It sounds like some crap to me. Nevertheless, he gives her the token and she takes it back and he takes off his face to reveal Jacken. Or someone that she believes is called Jacken anyway. Yes. What I found weird about this was, at the end of the Jacken Hagar storyline, it was revealed that that was a mask. Mm. That the face he was wearing then was a false face. So, has he put on a false face under the false face he was wearing? Maybe. I think it's just to remind us who it is. Maybe. I suppose if it was his decision to reveal to her who he really was, that's great. But, yeah, it makes no logical sense. (laughs) Still, happy to see Jack and Hagar back. Or not Jack and Hagar. And Arya says, oh, so it is you. It is Jack And he says, no, no, he's no one. And that she must become no one as well. Which sounds to me like she's being taken in to be an apprentice of some kind. Which is very exciting. In the next scene, we see Kier, who was the ex-slave counsellor to Daenerys, going into the cell where the son of the harpy is being kept. He doesn't even really say anything to him. He just sort of listens to this guy say, you'll always be shit. Which, I could understand, would be quite enraging for someone who'd just been freed from slavery. And the very next thing we see is him dead. 
apparently nailed to a wall. Yeah. With the words, kill the masters, scribed in blood next to him. In English. But yes. <laughs> yes, in English, because it would be too complicated to portray it any other way. Sure. Then we see Kia tied up, talking to Daenerys, who is very angry that he's killed the son of the harpy. Kier is trying to defend himself to Daenerys, and this is when I want to remind us all of what he said in the earlier conversation, when he says that the great families give money to other people to do the stuff they can't do themselves. Mm-hmm. And he basically says that's exactly what he was doing for Daenerys. He says, I did this because you couldn't, because your hands were tied, I did it for you. Mm. So, you know, he's doing the thing for Daenerys that he condemned the ruling families for, in a sense. I don't think he's necessarily condemning the outsourcing itself. I think he's condemning the fact that they're outsourcing people to kill slaves. Yes. I think that's his objection. Yes. Well, nevertheless. It's an interesting mirroring, nonetheless. It's also interesting that Kia very clearly says, the masters used to make the laws, and now Daenerys lives in the pyramid, and she makes the laws. And she responds by saying, the law is the law. What this was pointing out was that Daenerys' idea that law is something which is objective and exists on its own, independent of the rulers, who should also be subject to it, I suspect, she believes, Mm. is an idea that's totally alien to Kia. All he has ever known is that the people in power make the laws. And I think he really believes that Daenerys is going to let him go. Because when she says, take him, he looks genuinely shocked. Yeah. So Kira is taken outside for public sentencing Mm. and execution. And all around, the ex-slaves are begging for mercy for Kira. Yes. Daenerys is very clear when she speaks to the crowd. She says, he's killed someone who's going to be put on trial and the penalty is death. And she has him executed. Mm. And there is this moment of silence that steals over the crowd. She takes her time about it. Did you at any point think she was going to bottle out? I didn't think she was. I wondered if she would, because it was a long moment before she actually gave the order. I wondered whether she would. I hoped she wouldn't at that moment, because I felt that would send all the wrong messages at that time. Oh yeah, I think if she'd back down, that's game over. Mm. So she does follow through, although you can see the begging for mercy affects her. Mm. After the crowd falls silent, they start to hiss at her. Yeah, man. It's an effective way of expressing your displeasure at what has just happened. I've only ever seen it done in pantomimes and at the football, (laughs) and here it was much creepier. (laughs) The hissing just gets louder and the crowd actually turns. They start to become, well, they start to become violent, really. They Mm. start to throw rocks. And the Unsullied have to shield Daenerys with their shields to stop the rocks from hitting her. And she makes her way back into the pyramid. But it's clear that the crowd is not happy with what they've just seen. Yes, and they throw rocks both at her and at the masters who are there, Mm. who continue to show up at these major public events where they're clearly going to get beaten. Mm. They're not very wise in their RSVPing. No. It's clear that the ex-slaves see this as a move of someone who is in league with the masters. Because the first thing they do is throw stones at the Masters, and then she gets incorporated into that stone-throwing frenzy. Yes. I think in particular, I think the slaves see this as a betrayal. Yes. Someone that they called Mother. Someone they saw as their saviour betraying them. And I think you're right. He thought he was going to get away with it. He thought he would be forgiven for it, or set free. And even as he's about to be killed, as much as his face 
shows fear, it also shows just utter disbelief that she would do this to him. Yeah. When she was giving her speech, I thought she could have given a better one, frankly. I thought she could have done more to explain why this was necessary, or why she felt this was necessary to the crowd. It couldn't have hurt to have said to the crowd something like, look, I'm making a decision that you're not going to like, and I don't like having to make it. But being a different kind of ruler means this. Mm. means being fair. It means the rule of law applying to everyone. I'm happy that I came and I rescued you. I'm happy that you're free, and I think that's how things should be. But I can't become like the masters by deciding that some people are above the law. I think that would have been worth a go. And I'm kind of disappointed that she didn't think to say it. Yeah. She was clearly very emotionally wrought. Mm. So, I think it would have been good if she'd thought to say it as well. But she didn't, so... Meh. No. I, I did also think that it might have helped being emotionally wrought if that had been communicated in some way as well. Not to say, oh my god, I'm tearing myself up inside about this, but to say specifically, I'm not happy about this. I don't want to make this decision, but to be a good ruler, I have to. She looked like she didn't really care. I don't think she looked like she didn't really care. I'm not sure the hesitation came across as, I care about you people. No, but I think the look on her face probably did. Yeah. There would have been a lot of people in that crowd who couldn't see the expression on her face. There would have been an awful lot of people in the crowd who have no idea what she'd said at any point as well. (laughs) Maybe. Anyway, what do you think of her decision to execute Kia? Oh, it's the right decision. Absolutely. Okay. Really, what other options are there? I mean, she can imprison him indefinitely. That sort of is fine as well, I guess. But that would be a bad idea. This isn't really a world set up for indefinite imprisonment. No. But also, if he's alive all the time, then he's a a lightning rod for people who are upset about her decision to punish him at all. Yeah. Killing him could turn him into a martyr, though. That's true. It's true. I mean, martyrs are lightning rods as well. Yeah. Remember Kia, all the slaves may shout. Yeah, I don't know. I just think there's a reason the Tudors killed all of the pretenders to their throne. Sure. So, in the last scene, Daenerys is in her chambers. Grey Worm wants to put extra guards. Well, her whole council basically seemed to want to sleep around (laughs) her bed to make sure no one can get at her. Yes, yes they do. But she tells them all to leave. Mm. And she goes outside onto her balcony and turns around because she can hear some heavy breathing as of an animal Mm. and sees Drogon. First time we've seen him since, I think there was an episode last season where we saw him carry off some sheep or something. And he's very definitely been gone. It's been mentioned that, you know, she doesn't know where he is. And he's been gone long enough for him to theoretically have flown to the other side of the world. So this is the first time she's seen him in a long time. She's obviously very happy to see him, but also a little afraid, I think, because he's much bigger. He's very large very very intimidating. Yeah. But he also seems more at ease with her than the two captured ones. Yes. Who are obviously just sort of going slowly crazy in the dungeons. Yes. Rather than heavy breathing, what I heard was that there was hissing coming from outside. Even what the slaves had done, it made me wonder what she was going to find on the balcony. Fair enough. Daenerys does reach out for Drogon and he gets close, but not quite close enough for her to touch him. And then he decides to fly off and he flies off across the city. So she gets this close to getting in touch with her true self and her power and mm. her sense of identity and it just at the last minute stays out of her grasp. Yes. But it's progress. Anyway, that's where the episode ends. Yeah. When the credits started, did you think, there has been two minutes of this episode so far, <laughs> where is the rest of it? 
I don't think I felt it as strongly as you. But yes, the episodes do seem to be flashing by very quickly. Which, you know, is indicative of how good they are. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I expect the season finale shall go past in a couple of seconds. Lincoln will miss it. <laughs> That's right. We've also now got to the stage, except for a few characters who are quite enjoyable to hate, mm. where any new group of characters is introduced or you come back to the scene with them and you think, oh, that's right, I love these people. Yes. Oh, yes, and I love this as well. I love this storyline. You don't have that sort of down moment to think back of, oh, I can ignore this because I'll think about the three scenes that went beforehand. Yes. And, of course, you know what that means, don't you? What's that? Someone's about to die. If we're in this situation where almost everyone we're going to, we're going, oh, yes, how lovely it is to see so-and-so. Martin's not going to let that happen for long. I know that this series is supposed to depart from the books quite heavily. Mm. I doubt that the writers of the season are not going to follow into Martin's footsteps and not pull a fast one on us and go, ha, 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 we hate you all. So I'm expecting someone I really like to die any moment. I expect that at most points in time while watching this show, regardless of whether or not I'm happy about the people on screen. Will I seriously consider the possibility that Daenerys' arm was going to be snapped off by Drogon? Something I seriously considered while watching that scene was, was she going to lose a hand, baby? So, yeah. At any given moment, anyone can die. That's right. That's right. That's the strength of this, well, one of the many strengths of the series, is you do genuinely fear for all the characters that you like. Mm-hmm. No one has a character shield. No one. What did you think of the episode in general? I liked it. We're still building. Yes. So, it was no Red Wedding, or... Well, no, I mean, you know, if they had the climax of the no... season now... Well, it was also no Purple Wedding, which wasn't that far in. It wasn't up there in the upper echelons of exciting episodes. Mm. But that sort of familiarity with a lot of the characters... Now that we've known them for a number of seasons and we've seen a lot of them go through some serious adventures and some real tribulations, the extent to which I can enjoy just a simple scene between Gilly and Sam mm. is much higher than it was in previous seasons. And we'd only just met Sam or we'd only just seen Gilly and Sam together a couple of times. All of that stuff has been heightened and made more fun by familiarity with the characters. Yeah. So the baseline, I think, for enjoyment has also been dragged way up, even though this wasn't the most exciting episode we've ever had. Mm. Do you have a line of the week? A spoken line of the week? I do. I suspect this is going to be a category that is dominated by Tyrion and Varys this season. (laughs) I loved the exchange between them that went, are we really going to talk about the futility of everything all the way to Volantis? And Tyrion's response, which was, you're right. There's no point. It was very funny. Yeah. (laughs) So that's my favourite. How about you? I think the ease with which Sam just rebuffed the accusations that he's a wildling lover by going, well, at least I wasn't in the cellar hiding with her. In a puddle of my own making. In a puddle of my own making. Uh, That's a great line. I'm filing that one away for future use. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that Sam's very deft turning of that onto Flint was very good. Yes. What about the moment of the episode? For me, it was absolutely meeting Doran Martell and that exchange with Illyria Sand. Mm -hmm. It's a character I've been looking forward to for years, (laughs) and that exchange was great, and it bodes really well for how this whole Dawn storyline is going to go. Yes, I liked that scene very much as well. I think my pick would be Arya finally getting somewhere that we've been waiting for her to get to for a very long time. Yes. I haven't read the books, but ever since she met Jacken and he gave her the token, I think it's been pretty clear. 
given her life goals. Her five-year plan of killing everyone on her list. <laughs> That's right. I think that it was fairly strongly hinted at that she was going to train to be an assassin of some kind. Mm. And her finally joining the House of White and Black. We've been waiting four seasons for this to happen, and it's finally happened. So that was my moment of the episode. Bodes very well for the season to come. It does. For all the episodes to come. What would you give this episode out of ten? Probably about the same as last week's episode. Hmm. So something in the seven region. There were big stunning moments at the end of the episodes. The death of Mance Raider and then the arrival of the dragon. And those are big stunning moments to watch. So I think they finished each episode really well with a big sort of, whoa. But in terms of plot progression or any sort of big reveals, I don't think anything like that's happened so far this season. So it sort of feels like they're just reacquainting us with where everyone is and because of that I didn't feel that much distinction between the two episodes Yep, it's almost like we're just slowly checking in with everyone checking where they're up to which is great I'm sure they're building towards some really exciting stuff but for that reason I don't think there was sort of much momentum difference in this episode compared to last week yes no you're right I feel very similarly the episodes themselves you could watch them immediately after each other and not notice a skip in the beat at Mm. all they'd flow very neatly from one to the other And yeah, 7 out of 10 is what I was thinking too. Very much on par. Stating again that 7 out of 10 for Game of Thrones is 9 out of 10 for any other show on television. Yes. Except The Wire. (laughs) The greatest TV show ever made. I'll have to watch it one day. One day. Take you all one day. (laughs) Well, that wraps it up for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, please send it to tppfeedback at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter as at TPP Feedback, and you can find us on Facebook just by searching for The People's Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Unless it's cruel. Then you can fuck right off. Bye! Fuckity bye! The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Oh, uh, what's... Bad times. What's it doing this for? Um... What do you call Edan that doesn't belong to you? Nacho cheese. Nacho cheese! <laughs> I take it this is where Arya is? It's- this is where you'll find the man you seek. Jackin? That's who gave her the coin. Yeah. God, that was so long ago now. <laughs> oh, wait! <laughs> no, she's just like, fuck. Ooh. Ooh. My lady. We have the Avalon horse. Find more.
had cast a new rock. Go, Kevin. Yeah. I found him there after the battle was over, in a puddle of his own making. <laughs> Even loves it. This is not an advanced voting process. First past the post, honestly. <laughs> wow. Fuck you very much. <laughs> Oh, ho, 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 ho. 